delighted that you're here. We have a good number present. We have a number of visitors with us. We're glad you've come and hope you can come back and be with us again. Last Lord's Day morning, we began a study of divisions within the Church of Christ. For those who are not here, I mentioned the fact the other elders asked that if I could present a short study of that, of two or three lessons, and so that we do. Churches of Christ divided in the mid-1800s. We're going to come back to that a few, uh, few moments from now. The churches of Christ divided again in the mid-1900s. And the question is, is, what were the issues then and what are the issues now that divide churches of Christ? We're looking at this in three parts. Last Lord's Day morning, we talked about the heart of the division and Bible authority. And today we're going to talk about some of the history of the division. We'll spend a great deal of time talking about the historical aspect of what really happened in some of these divisions. And then tonight we'll wind that, that up. Time, the, the reason we need to keep studying this division of particularly what happened in the mid-1900s. For example, in 1955, when this division, we'll talk a little bit more later, this is uh, some numbers we looked at last time, if that division took place about 1955, and it, from 55 to 65 we'll talk about, then that means if you're 65 or younger, you were not even born at the time of the division. If you're 75, you were only 10 years old when this division took place. If you're 85, you were about 20 years old, which means if you're in your 80s and younger, you were not in the, in the, the heat of the battle. You were not in the middle of that. So some of those who were 80s, in their 80s, 70s, and 80s, you remember that division, but you were the younger ones then. And what I'm suggesting is that most of our brethren nowadays only know from studying history what this division was all about and not from experiencing that. Those of my dad's generation, my dad is 89. He fought this battle, but he was one of the younger men. He wasn't in the middle of the fray uh, as men like Cogdell and others and Porter and others that we'll talk about a little bit later. In our last study, we talked about Bible authority. This is at the heart of every issue, and that is we talk about how to establish Bible authority, the need for it, and the fact that we must have Bible authority, and how we establish that. And we talked about Acts 15, we'll come back to that, and then we talked about applying Bible authority. During the Restoration Movement, let's go back to the 1800s. During the early part of the 1800s, during the Restoration Movement, coming out of the Reformation Movement, there was this Restoration Movement, and there were a number of men trying to point men back to the Bible, to the New Testament, and they were making pleas like this. They were saying, where the Bible speaks, we speak, and where the Bible is silent, we are silent. That appealed to many. And so the Restoration Movement grew. They were converting people out of denominationalism in the early 1800s. They called for men to lay aside their opinions and unite upon the scriptures, they would say. There were two mindsets that developed by the mid-1800s. There was one mindset that said the church can do only what is positively authorized in the scriptures. If you can't find authority, you can't do it. There was another mindset that said we can do anything that's specifically forbidden. They were going in different directions. And that tells me then division was inevitable. When you have two mindsets developing and people are going in separate directions, it's waiting for an issue to come and when that issue arises, they're going to go in separate directions and that's exactly what happened. So the church divided in the mid-1800s. There were two major issues. We're only going to address one of those today. 
the Missionary Society in 1849 and instrumental music in 1859. Now, as a result of that division, that's what formed into the Christian church. So as you drive through town and you see a church that says, this is the Christian church, where'd that come from? The Christian church came out of this reformation, restoration movement and the division of the mid-1800s. So those that favored the Missionary Society, instrumental music, is what became the more liberal movement, and by the early 1900s, they were recognized as a separate entity. And by 1906, the U.S. Census recognized the, uh, the Christian church as a denomination. So what you have is, uh, and by the way, uh, they, they, had a, they had a split a little bit later. The Disciples of Christ is the more liberal element of the Christian church. They have their conservatives and liberals. And the more liberal element is the idea of the disciples of Christ. They went, they went full-fledged and accepted about anything. Let's jump 100 years now. Let's come to the 1900s. I'm just giving you the thumbnail description. We're going to come back and get some details. But in the mid-1900s, the church divided again. And here were the issues not in this order. I'll give you the order a little bit later. There was the sponsoring church arrangement. There was the orphan home issue, college in the church budget, the social gospel, church involved in recreation. And as a result of that, there was a split in the churches of Christ from 1955 to 65. Were they splitting before that? They certainly were. Did they split after that? They did, but that was the bulk of that division in that 10-year period from 55 to 65. And that's resulted in there being churches that would be labeled as institutional, and those that are non-institutional are those that support human institutions and those that oppose that. And that was the end of that kind of division, the result of that. Now let's talk about the value of learning history. This is going to be somewhat historical in our study today. Norman Cousins said, the history is a vast early warning system. If we are aware of history among brethren, that's a vast early warning system. What Eisenhower said, neither the wise man nor the brave man lies down on the tracks of history to wait for the train of the future to run over him. I say Amen. Another author said that each time history repeats itself, the price goes up, and indeed it does. So let's start with this. We're trying to give a history. Let's go back to the Missionary Society, and I think it's important to go back to that of the 1800s because of the parallel that we're going to see in the 1930s and in the 1950s. We'll come back to that a little bit later. So let's talk about what took place in the 1800s. History is repeating itself by the 1950s. But by 1849, we're going to back up a little before that. Let's talk about the Missionary Society. This is during the Restoration Movement. This is in the time of men like Alexander Campbell and Barton Stone and a host of others. So in the 1800s, let's talk about the history behind the Missionary Society. The Missionary Society was born out of a desire to evangelize the world. That's a great motive. Jesus said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. That's a great motive to go preach the gospel to everyone. There was a crying need for the gospel to be preached on the American and foreign soil, and everyone would say amen to that. And there was not enough being done to spread the gospel both here and abroad. And so it was born out of a great desire to evangelize the world. Alexander Campbell, who did not start the church at all, but in fact there is a great deal of evidence the church was well in existence in America long before he set foot coming from Scotland. But nonetheless, he was the one responsible primarily for beginning the Missionary Society. He was, in 
if we lived in that day and time, we would consider him a progressive or a liberal. What is it that Alexander Campbell did? Well, in 1831, he wrote a series in the Millennial Harbinger, that was his paper, that argued that the church can do whatever the individual can't, and so a group of churches can do what the local church cannot. Here is his quotation. He said a church can do what the individual disciple cannot, and so can a district of churches do what a single congregation cannot. The New Testament furnishes us with principles which call forth our energies but suggest no plan. What he's saying is that an individual can only do what he can do, but if we pool our money together, we can do more. And one church can only do so much, but if we all churches pool our money together, we can do even more. That was his concept. Well, he didn't say much for about 10 more years. And then finally about 1841, now we're 10 years later, there was a push for stronger, for more organizations to help in the preaching of the gospel. Campbell again said, I am so deeply penetrated with the necessity of a more intimate organization, union, and corporation than it presently existing among us, that I feel myself duty-bound to again invite the attention of the brotherhood to a more thorough and profound consideration of the subject than they have ever given to it. We need these organizations to the spread of the gospel. It became clear that Campbell had this idea that the brotherhood-wide organizations through which the church could preach the gospel was necessary. And so he began to push for that. So in 1842 to 1849, he wrote again a series of articles on church organizations. So by 19, or 1849 is when the first missionary society came along. The first missionary society was established October 23, 1849 in Cincinnati, Ohio, it became known as the American Christian Missionary Society, and wouldn't you know it, Campbell was the first president of that organization. The very thing he was pushing for. Now, this is historical. So let's talk about how there was opposition from the conservatives. Campbell himself had opposed Now, that's interesting, because I'm going to show you some parallels to that by the 1930s. In the 1820s, Campbell was opposing these organizations, but he shifted and he changed. There's a fundamental lesson. Just because someone stands for the truth today and they're fighting some error today doesn't mean they'll be fighting it tomorrow. They may be the instigator of starting that error the next, next year or down the line. Don't ever forget that. Don't put confidence in a man because he stood strong here. He may not be standing strong there later. And that was the case with Campbell. He had opposed these at once. Now this is interesting too because in 1855, many of you are familiar with the Gospel Advocate, it was the largest publication among churches of Christ to date. I don't think there's been another paper, another periodical that has been as large as it was in its heyday. The largest publication among churches of Christ. Well, it was started in 1855. It was started by Tolbert Fanning along with William Lipscomb. You probably don't know William Lipscomb, but you know his younger brother, David Lipscomb. And it was these two men who started the Gospel Advocate in 1855 and then later edited by David Lipscomb. The whole purpose of starting that paper was to fight the innovation of the Missionary Society, to condemn the Missionary Society and instruct and teach brethren the Missionary Society was wrong. And so they did. So let's talk about what the Missionary Society is. I gave you the history behind it. What is the Missionary Society? What, what are we talking about in the Missionary Society? The Missionary Society is an organization, a separate organization between the church and the work being done. You won't hear me say that time and again through today and then tonight. That the society, the Missionary Society, was a separate organization between the church and the work being done. So here's what we have. 
We have churches over here. We have a church, for example, these local churches along here that are preaching the gospel. On the other side over here, we have the, the, the preachers that are to be supported. But in the middle, you have a missionary society. What is that missionary society? It's not the church. It's not the preachers being supported or the work that's being done. It was a separate organization. You had Campbell as the president. You had a vice president, secretary and treasurer, board, etc. You had an organization that stood between the church and the work that was being done. That's what the missionary society was. Now, let's talk about what the issue really was. The issue was not should the gospel be preached. Everybody agreed the gospel should be preached. It was not an issue of churches having responsibility to preach, to the, gospel, uh, preach the gospel or evangelize the world, nor was it how little is being done. The cry was being made, we're not doing much overseas. We're not evangelizing the world. There's a great need for things being done. It was not a question of how much good could the missionary society do. That was not the issue. The issue was then, and the issue has always been concerning the missionary society, is where is the scripture for the organization between the church and the work being done? We don't need a passage that tells us the church, because we all agree the church should preach the gospel, and we don't need to find a passage that says preachers should be supported, they should be supported. We all agree with that, we all know the passages. But what's missing is where is the passage that authorizes the missionary society, the organization between the church and the work being done? Now again, we're being historical here, so let's give the historical perspective of the objections to that. What were the objections? And why did the uh, gospel advocate oppose that? And other men stand against the missionary society? Well, simply because there was no Bible authority for it. You recall from our study in Acts 15 last week, and if you weren't here, then you might quickly turn to Acts 15. I don't have time to develop Acts 15 now. We did that thoroughly last week. But in Acts 15, in settling the question of circumcision, whether it's binding, they made an appeal to command or a direct statement from God, verses 13 to 21, in the speech that James made, made an appeal to approved example by Paul and Barnabas, verse 12, and necessary inference, verses 7 through 11, in the speech that Peter made. So they established Bible authority by appealing to command example or inference. So now let's go back to our question of the missionary society. There was no command. There is no example, and there is no necessary inference. So the conclusion is there is no Bible authority. You can't find an example of it in the Bible. You can't find a command for it, nor is there a passage that necessarily infers that. So what was wrong with it? There was no Bible authority for it. But here's something else that was wrong with that. It was supposed on the basis that it denies the all-sufficiency of the church. The church can do its own work. 1 Timothy 3.15, it is the pillar and the ground of truth. Furthermore, the Bible tells us that the church can send to a preacher. It can send men, or send men out to preach, first in Acts 13, like they did on the missionary journey, sent Paul and Silas for it. So the church can send men out to preach. There's no organization necessary for that. It can support men to preach the gospel, like Paul took wages of other churches to do service at Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and in verse 8. Same thing in Philippians chapter 4. So what man is trying to do here is they're trying to improve upon God's plan with organization. The church can do its own work, but we can make an improvement if we have an organization that man creates that we support and then carry out the work that's being done. Here's a third objective being made. And that is it seeks to organize and activate the church in a universal sense. 
You see, the church in the universal sense is made up of individual Christians around the world. Not made up of churches, but made up of individuals. There's no officers in the church in the universal sense. There's no work. There's no organization. There is no treasury from which to function. There is no organization larger than the local church in the pages of the New Testament. You won't find it. You won't find an organization larger than the local church. Campbell's problem was he viewed the universal church as a group of local churches. He would talk about a district of churches. And then let me footnote to say that in our own time, you'll hear brethren talk about Church of Christ churches. Same concept that Campbell had. When they use that terminology, they're basing that, whether they understand their terminology or not, that's the same concept that Campbell had. So when you begin to think of churches in districts of churches, or the church universal being made up of groups of churches being members within the local church, they have the same concept that Campbell had, which was simply trying to activate the church in a universal sense. Now let's move to another issue, and so let's skip a few years now. With that in our background, in our mind, of the missionary society, let's talk about the church support of colleges. Church support of colleges. Now we're in the 1900s, and I'll give you the dates on that in a moment. What was the issue here? The issue was churches being, or colleges rather, being supported by churches of Christ. That was the first institutional issue. So many of you who remember those days, you probably remember the question of the orphan home being the big question, and it was. It's the most notable of all the issues, but that wasn't the first issue. That's not what brought the thing to a head. It was the college issue that was the first institutional issue. Today, most colleges among brethren are supported by churches. These colleges, for example, like David Lipscomb in Nashville, Freed Hardeman over here at Henderson in Tennessee, Harding at Searcy, Arkansas, Abilene in Abilene, Texas, and Oklahoma Christian out in Oklahoma. And those are just a few. Most of those, are, or all of those that have listed there, are receiving funds out of church treasuries. So the colleges are supported by the church out of their treasuries. That was the issue. Let's talk about the history behind it. As we talk about the history behind it, it's important to understand that there were some early schools that had some church support. This didn't start now in the 1930s. This started much earlier. There was a Kentucky female orphan home that L.L. Pinkerton, now that name may ring a bell to you. This is in 1849. Ten years after this, Pinkerton was the first one to bring the instrument to the worship. He was the man that did that at Midway, Kentucky. But he operated this Kentucky female orphan home, and it received some church support. Fanning Orphan School, Tolbert Fanning in 1844 received some church contributions. But the point is it wasn't widespread. There were some churches doing that in the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. There was a little bit of that going on, but it wasn't widespread. So it didn't become a major issue across the nation. The first police came in 1933, and then 35, and then 38 by a man named G.C. Brewer. Very liberal-minded man. He wrote a series of articles on organizations and the Gospel Advocate. Now that's interesting because that was the magazine started to oppose the Missionary Society. Remember that? A series of articles in the Gospel Advocate that said colleges had a right to exist and churches should support them. That was in 33. Well, in 1935, he made appeal for churches to put colleges and orphan homes in the budget and said the churches at Cleburne and Sherman in Texas where he had preached and two in Ohio had done that very thing. So it's not widespread yet, but he's ar arguing that that should be done. Now, 1938 is an important date because this was kind of a turning point. 
At the Abilene Christian College lectures, in giving one of his speeches there, Brewer said that the elders should put Abilene Christian College in the church budget, and any church that doesn't support the college has the wrong preacher in the pulpit. Well, that didn't sit well with a lot of people, but he's getting some ground. Trying to urge that churches support the colleges. Well, now that was not widespread acceptance for a while. It didn't, it didn't take off for a while. Most brethren didn't agree with that. It's not building steam. It's the, the thoughts being sown. The college was a hard sell. And here's what I mean by that. There's no emotion t- attached to that. <clears throat> it doesn't have the, uh, the emotion tied that other, or- the or- like the orphan's home that we'll come to a little bit later. So it was a hard sell convincing brethren they need to support that. So 1947 became a turning point. 38 and 47 were turning points. The seed was sown in 38, in fact, before. But 1947 was a turning point when the issues really began to build. Abilene Christian College making a strong push for churches putting them into their budget. Now, let me footnote. Anybody familiar with colleges that have operated by brethren and know the work of a president of a college, his major role is trying to drum up money to keep the college going. If you can get the churches to support that, that makes their job much easier. If it has to be by individuals, then it's got a real tough job of raising enough money for the college to operate. So they need the churches to be supporting these, they think. So they made a strong push for that. N.B. Hardiman, now that ought to ring a bell. N.B. Hardiman started Freed Hardiman College. He's known in this town among horse people as a horseman uh, out here at the celebration. He was well known in this city because of his love for that. But nonetheless... He was recognized as a, as a powerful gospel preacher who started a college. He turned the issue now. Here's what he did. He shifted the issue from the college, that's been the big question, to the orphan's home. And what did he say? He said the right to contribute to one is the right to contribute to the other. The same principle that permits one permits the other. They must stand or fall together. Well, he was right about that. But what he was saying, we ought to support both, where sound brethren were saying you ought to oppose both. See, what he just did, he shifted it to a sellable, if that be the correct word, issue. The orphan's home has an emotion tied to it. And if we can ever get brethren to convince that you ought to support the orphan home because of the emotion tied to it, then they use that as a tool to get to the college. That's what they were after, because that's what they were talking about, and then that's where Hardiman turned the issue in 1947. But there was opposition to the college in the budget. There was the Bible banner being published. Periodicals in those days had powerful influence for good and for for bad. The Bible banner and later the Gospel Guardian were published by Foy Wallace Jr. and Roy Cogdell. They opposed that. The first debate on record was in 1954. Some of you remember Charles Holt. He used to preach over here in Franklin. He had the first debate on record on the institutional questions with W.L. Toddy. And he dealt with the college issue. Well, we come on down in 1963. Batsel Barrett Baxter from Nashville echoed Hardiman, and here's what he said in this book we call Issues and Questions, uh, Questions and Issues of the Day in the Light of the Scriptures. He said, some who are agreed that the church can contribute to an orphan's home, but are convinced the church, cannot, uh, can, uh, the church can contribute to a Christian school, it is difficult to see the significant difference so far as the principal are concerned, is concerned, The orphan's home and the Christian school must stand or fall together. Well, he was right about that. But again, he's arguing 
they stand together rather than fall. Well, just quickly, Athen Clay Pulius in 1968 wrote a tract, uh, and he, it was published by David Lipscomb College that made a push for the church in, in the budget. Now, here's where we stand today. All of the schools that Brethren ever started across the country are supported by church contributions like Fried Hardeman, Harding University, Lipscomb University, Oklahoma Christian, Abilene Christian, just to begin a few. There is only one that did not. Now, the pulpit is not a place to advocate a college or to be critical of a college. That's not my point here. I'm going to give you historical perspective. Those of you who send your kids there and you, you're favorable to the school, you need to take a moment and be thankful for a man named James R. Cope. He was the second president. L.R. Wilson was the first. At age of 32, he was the youngest college president in the nation. At that young age, he came and, and took the, the ship and began to steer that through the battle of institutionalism, fighting all the opposition and all of the pressures to put the college in the budget of the churches. In 1956, in the spring, he stood up in a board meeting when one of the board members was pressuring him, let's get the college to have the ch accept church contribution. He stood up, and if you knew Cope and had heard him as the way I did, he had that stern look in his eye when he stood up and he said, Sir, my soul is not for sale, nor is this college. You have to have appreciate the stamina and the faith and the dedication of men like Jim Cope. Now, let's talk about the mission and the work of the church. What was the problem with the college being in the budget? Well, let's talk about the mission and the work of the church. The work is determined by God and not by man. We must do all things according to the pattern, Hebrews 8 and in verse 5. Remember that? Is there a pattern? We must follow the pattern. Christ has all authority, so that means the work of the church is determined by God, not by a group of men deciding that. Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians chapter 1. We must abide within the doctrine of Christ, 2 John 9. So all of those passages are telling me that what I have to do is I have to turn to the Scriptures and find in the Scriptures what God says about what the work of the church is. So let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 12. <clears throat> let's go to Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 12. Here we have a description of the work of the church. It is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So first, notice he mentions the equipping of the saints, the work of the ministry, and the edifying of the body of Christ. What are those? Well, let's see. The work is threefold. First of all, there is the equipping of the saints. What's the equipping of the saints? The word means simply, that is the word equipping, means to repair, to put in order, to make complete. Later in the same context, talks about the church edifying itself in love. Here is a description of the work of edification, the church building itself up. That's what we're doing right now. That's why the church takes money and spends for worship services, for the preaching and the teaching of the gospel, building ourselves up, our Bible class programs, etc. Then there is the work of ministry. It's used of service. It's used of benevolence in Acts 6 used of benevolence in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9. Acts 6, 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16 shows the church has a responsibility in the area of benevolence. So the church has the work of edification, the work of benevolence. Thirdly, the edifying of the body of Christ. It means to build up, the American standard says, to increase by teaching. 
The church is the pillar and the ground of truth, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and in verse 15. So here is the work of evangelism. Now other passages could be cited, but here we have the work of edification, benevolence, and evangelism. Now let's carry that a little bit further. Now I know what the work of the church is. I must understand the work of the church is not social. We'll talk about that this evening. That is, it's not for the uh, social betterment of man. The gospel was never designed to solve and change social issues, but made life better under those. How so? Well, look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. You can look at it at your own time, but verse, chapter 7, verse 20, if you were a slave when you were converted, I'm paraphrasing, then you remain a slave after you're converted. Didn't change the issue of slavery. The point is that the gospel does not address the social ills of man. It's a spiritual message. So the work of the church is not social. We see that same principle in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The home is the center of social activities. Do you not have houses to eat and to drink in? We'll talk about that this evening. The work of the church is not recreation. It's not the matter of business, nor is it secular education. That is to educate people with math and science and history and language. So what was wrong with the church support of the college? It was involved in work that was not a work of the church. It was not edification. It was not evangelism, nor was it a matter of benevolence. So let's talk about some of the problems with church support of colleges. What were some of the problems? First of all, let's talk about what the issue was. The issue was not, did the college have a right to exist? Could individuals contribute to the college? That wasn't the question. Nor was it the corruption in them and what is taught in the college. You may oppose a college over here because of what they teach, what they endorse, or maybe the corruption of, of uh, the leaders in that. For example, there's not a man on the Bible faculty at, uh, at David Lipscomb that believes in the inerrancy of the Scriptures. Well, I would oppose that. I wouldn't want to send my kids there. But that's not what the issue was of whether the church could support it or not. That wasn't the issue. That wasn't the question at all. The question was, do the Scriptures authorize churches to contribute to a Bible college. Where is the passage? Well, then here's the, the real issue. That there is no Bible authority. Remember command, example, and inference from Acts chapter 15? There is no command for the church to support a college. There is no example of the church supporting a college. There is no necessary inference that suggests the church should support a college. Now, here's why we went back and talked about the missionary society a little bit earlier. This is not any different from the missionary society. Now, I'll remind you what the missionary society was. What you have in the missionary society is you have here these local churches sending money to this missionary society, a separate organization between the church and the work being done of supporting preachers. And so the churches are sending the money. This organization then makes the decision of the preaching of the gospel. Now, what do you have in, in the matter of the Bible college? What you have, a Christian school or the Bible college, you have the church, you have a separate organization between the church and the work of being done. Their argument was they're teaching the Bible in these colleges. Well, that was true. They're teaching more than that, but they're teaching the Bible. But what we have now is an organization between the church and the work being done of teaching the Bible. You have a president and a board, etc. You have a complete organization between the church and the work being done. There was no different from the missionary society of the 1800s. And isn't it interesting that those that opposed the missionary society favored the church-sponsored college that we see by the 1930s. If one of those is scriptural, then so is the other. 
Here's another objection concerning that, and that is it puts the church in secular business. It puts it in secular education. While these were Bible colleges, that's true, that's not all they taught, that was still secular education. You see, the funds went to fund the whole college. So you have a science department, you have a language department, you have all the departments that you have in all of your colleges. But we're educating Christians, but it's putting the church into the secular education business that is neither edification, benevolence, or evangelism. So here's a summary of those problems. The summary of those problems is there's no Bible authority for it. The work is secular in its nature, and there is an organization between the church and the work that's being done. Now, I wanted to go further and talk about one other issue, and I'm going to introduce that issue, but we're going to come back and give the details of that this evening because we don't have time to develop that in full. But I'm just going to give you an introduction to that. When the college was abandoned at first by, by abandoning, what I mean is that they wanted to support the college, but they shifted to the, mission, uh, to the benevolent society, orphan zone, that's what this is, benevolent society. And it became the primary issue so I just want to mention a couple of things about that, and then we'll stop and we'll finish that this evening. This was the most noted of all the differences. Maybe this will whet your appetite to come back and see what tonight is about. This was the most noted of all the differences. It carried the most emotion of all of the issues. The college was an interesting issue. The sponsoring church was an interesting issue. Church recreation was an interesting issue. They got heated at times, but not like the orphan's home issue. It carried the most emotion. It was the most misunderstood of the issues. In other words, there, there seemed to be more understanding, even though there was a misunderstanding, more understanding of the college, the sponsoring church, or some of the other issues than this issue. This was the most misunderstood issue that divided brethren in the 1950s, 1960s. And because of the history involved in that, we want to get that history. I'm going to stop at that juncture because we've, I've got more material than we can. Uh, you'll, you'll, you'll quit listening before I get through with that. So we're going to come back and talk about that. We'll talk about the sponsoring church arrangement. And where do we stand now? There's a footnote, just a footnote. Most churches that supported the orphan's home won't support them anymore. Very few churches of Christ are supporting the orphans' homes anymore. That was a big issue. Why aren't they supporting it? We'll talk about that tonight. Why have they quit? We'll talk about that in our study tonight. There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, and be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?
unto thee. <clears throat> I'd like to thank each and every one of you.